How do you feel about money? Money can be a source of great joy. It pays for things we need. And more excitingly, it pays for things we really enjoy. But there are also tensions with money. It can be a painful topic. Coronavirus has caused a recession. Money is tight. We know that money we spend on one thing is money we can't spend on another. Money, it's a big deal in our lives. And so it's not surprising that today we find Jesus teaching about money. Two quick things before we get into the passage. Firstly, it'll be really helpful for you to be able to look at the passage as we go. So do get Luke chapter 16 open in front of you. And secondly, there are some hard things in our passage today. As we go along, you're likely to have questions. Why not jot them down and bring them up when it's time for breakout groups? Or if you're joining us on YouTube, at the bottom of the Town Church website, there's a get in touch form you can use. So in Luke 16, we meet Jesus as he's telling a story. He tells it as he encounters some Pharisees who love money. We see that in verse 14. It's a rather dramatic story, a story full of contrasts. And there's two main characters. The first character, he's a rich man living a life of total luxury. We're told his clothes are purple. By weight, purple dye at the time was pricier than silver. So in today's life, he'd probably consider shopping at Vista Village beneath him. His meals and of course his snacks, they were prepared by his own Michelin-starred chef for him and his friends. He's fabulously rich and he loves it. But then there's Jesus' second character, a beggar named Lazarus. Lazarus is hungry. He hasn't had a proper meal in years. And desperate hunger isn't the only distress that Lazarus feels. His skin is covered in painful sores. Think about the discomfort of multiple mouth ulcers and then imagine those multiplied across your whole body. The sores, they're itchy and tender. And Lazarus lies on the road outside the rich man's gate. He begs for the crumbs that fall from the table at the rich man's feasts. His life is thoroughly unpleasant. But despite the great contrast between these two men, the same thing happens to both. Both die. That's verse 22. Lazarus the beggar finds himself comforted in heaven, but the rich man dies and finds himself in the awful surroundings of hell. Why do these two men face such different circumstances? Is Jesus telling us that desperately poor men and women go to heaven, while very rich men and women go to hell? No, that wouldn't fit with what Jesus teaches elsewhere. It also doesn't fit with the details of this story. Notice who's described in verses 22 and 24 as being at the centre of heaven. Abraham. Back in the very first pages of our Bibles, in Genesis 13 verse 2, Abraham is described as being very wealthy. That's a quote. And right at the centre of heaven in this story is very wealthy Abraham. So the point of this story can't be that wealth leads to hell. And likewise, the point is not that poverty leads to heaven. To understand why these two men face such different circumstances when they die, we need to look at the context in which Jesus is telling this story. If you're taking notes, here's our first of four headings. Our love of money reveals our rejection of God. Our love of money reveals our rejection of God. Take a look at verse 13 with me. Jesus is teaching the crowds, and here is what he says. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
you cannot serve both God and money. Imagine a servant. They're employed by a master. Perhaps think of the crown on Netflix and the queen's attendants in those distinctive red uniforms. The attendants, they serve their master, the queen. They do whatever she asks. Suppose she needs a cup of tea, they're on it. Or when she's talking to a visitor, the attendants are ready, waiting attentively for the sound of that bell that means she wants them to open the door and usher out her guests. And so Jesus says in verse 13 that no one can serve two masters. So you can't be the queen's attendant and also be part of the king of Spain's staff. Because what do you do when the Spanish king is hosting a banquet on the same night as the queen? You can't serve at both banquets. If you have two masters, their interests will conflict. And when that happens, it will become obvious where your allegiance lies. If your need is at Buckingham Palace, but decide to serve at the Spanish banquet, it's clear that your devotion is to the Spanish king. You've rejected the queen. You can't serve two masters. The crowds who listened to Jesus, they'd have got that. They knew about serving human masters. But now comes Jesus' punchline at the end of verse 13. You cannot serve both God and money. Just as you can't be devoted to two human masters, you can't be devoted to both God and money. Allegiance to God and allegiance to money will call you in different directions. It's like reaching a T-junction in your car. You get to a signpost, one way points towards money, the other way points towards God. When you reach the junction, the way you go reveals where your allegiance lies. And listening to Jesus as he said all of this was a group of Pharisees. Note Luke's description of them in verse 14. He says that they loved money. These Pharisees' allegiance was to God over money. They wouldn't have admitted that. They probably didn't even realise that they loved money more than God. But every day, as they reached little T-junctions in their decision-making, they took the road that headed to money, not the road that was pleasing to God. And so Luke tells us in verse 14, they sneered at Jesus' teaching. They were deeply unimpressed. And it's in response to these money-loving Pharisees that Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Like the listening Pharisees, the rich man loves money over God. He had vast wealth, but he didn't give a penny to help the destitute beggar at his gate. He may have thought he loved God, but by ignoring God's command to care for the needy and vulnerable, his actions revealed that he loved money and chose to reject God. By telling this story, Jesus says to the listening money lovers, watch out. Your love of money is a big deal because your love of money reveals your rejection of God. You and I all love money and reject God. The outward workings of our love of money may look different for different people. But the same warning applies to you and I. Watch out. Your love of money is a big deal because your love of money reveals you reject God. The rich man, he ignores the beggar at his gate. How about you? Are you prepared to part with money for the sake of the needy and vulnerable? Have you listened to God's call to do so? To his call to be sacrificial in doing so? Or do we turn a cold, uncaring eye to the desperate situations of those in this country and around the world? Helping those in need can be costly. If we give money to those in need, there will be less left for us and our families. Less money to save for our futures, 
less money to spend on our houses, our cars, our holidays, our clothes and our weekly shop. The outgoings from our bank account might be a sign that we love money and we love using it for ourselves and therefore that we reject God. How big a deal is it to reject God? Should ignoring God have consequences? What's the answer Jesus gives in this story? Well, he says that it's an awful thing to reject God, that ignoring God has awful consequences. That's our second takeaway for tonight. Our rejection of God is serious and awful. Our rejection of God is serious and awful. The rich man, he rejoiced in money rather than delighting in the loving God who created him. He rejected the God who cared for him and provided him with his wealth. His love of money proves that he has rejected God. What are the consequences for him? He dies and finds himself in hell. Take a look with me at how Jesus describes this rich man's experience of hell. Twice in verses 23 and 27, Jesus calls hell a place of torment. And twice in verses 24 and 25, this rich man's experience is described as agony. And this agony, says verse 24, is taking place within a fire. You know when you're so thirsty that even though your water bottle is completely empty, you turn it upside down, searching for that tiniest drop of water that might satisfy your thirst? The rich man's experience of the fire is so awful that in verse 24 he pleads for even just a tiny drop of water to help relieve his agony and his requests ignored. And the pain continues because in verse 26, Jesus says that hell is a permanent destination. There's no rescue. The picture Jesus paints here of hell is horrifying. Why is Jesus giving us this description? Well, remember that he was declaring that loving both God and money is impossible. Love of money reveals a rejection of God. The money-loving Pharisees sneered at that thought in verse 14. They thought they could love money without rejecting God. But these Pharisees definitely rejected God. They sneered at Jesus. Jesus is God. Ironically, the very act of their sneering showed their rejection of God, as they sneered at God himself. And what's the consequence of their rejection of God? That they would face the awful destination Jesus describes. And they deserve it, because rejecting God is an awful thing to do. But the thing is, we saw earlier that all of us reject God. One of us, multiple times a day, turns from the awesome sessions or experiences that money can buy, or in the safety that money seems to offer. And because of our turning away from God, because of our choosing money over God, you and I, deserve the agony, torment and fire that Jesus describes here. But we are not all going to experience it. We see that in this story. The rich man, he's not the only one who dies. Verse 22 tells us of the angels coming and taking Lazarus the beggar to heaven, taking him to Abraham's side. Abraham was the first of God's chosen people in the Old Testament, the first of the Jewish people. Everyone present, as Jesus told this story, would have been descended from Abraham, both Jesus' listening crowd, but also Jesus himself. The rich man here addresses him as Father Abraham, a sign of the great respect and affection there would have been for Abraham. 
So for angels to come and take Lazarus to Abraham's side is a huge honour for Lazarus. And in great contrast to his rotten life, he finds him comforted in heaven, every tear wiped from his eyes. So why did Lazarus come to heaven? Well, there's something unique about Lazarus. You probably know that Jesus told a lot of stories. There's another one earlier in Luke chapter 16, and chapter 15 contains three pretty famous stories that Jesus told. But Lazarus is unique because he's the only character in a story of Jesus who has a name. So we should pay attention to that name. And the name Lazarus, it means God is my helper. The rich man goes to hell for rejecting God. Lazarus deserves that too because he rejects God. But his name, God is my helper, shows us that God is Lazarus's helper. That's where Lazarus goes to heaven. Just as the rich man in this story is a picture of rejecting God, Lazarus is a picture of what it means to be a Christian. Christians deserve hell as much as anyone else because none of us love and serve God as we should. But for us tonight who are Christians, we will not experience hell because God is our helper. He has helped us by forgiving us through Jesus's death on the cross. God forgives our rejection of him. God, our helper, keeps on forgiving, even as we keep loving money and keep failing to love him properly. God's forgiveness rescues Christians from having to face the agonies of hell. And it brings us back to an intimate relationship with him. God's help solves our problem of our love of money and our rejection of him. We come now to the final scene of Jesus' story. We've been following the tale of the rich man and Lazarus until now, but the spotlight turns slightly. The focus shifts to people who are still alive, people still alive like you and I. Here's our title for this scene. Listen to God's word and turn to him. Listen to God's word and turn to him. Take a look with me at verse 28. The rich man is speaking. I have five brothers and sisters. Let Lazarus warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. The rich man, he knows his siblings well enough to now realise that they too have rejected God. Their love of money shows it. And so when they die, they will face the same agony he is experiencing unless they turn to God for help. And so he asks that his brothers and sisters be warned. I beg you to send Lazarus to warn them, he says. Please warn them. That way they won't end up in this awful place. It's quite similar to the requests we often bring to God in prayer here at Town Church. We ask God to show our friends and family their rejection of God and ask that they would be saved from that rejection and the consequences of it. But what reply does the rich man get in response to his request? His request that his family be sent a warning to keep them from hell. The reply comes in verse 29. It's short and simple. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Jesus' listeners would have known immediately that Moses and the prophets means the Bible, the written word of God. Abraham saying, yes, your family needs warning, but they've already been warned. They already have the warnings of the Bible. The rich man's reply comes in verse 30. No, no, the Bible, it's not a warning my family will listen to. They don't pay attention to the Bible. But if someone from the dead appeared to them, they'd listen to that, then they would repent. Notice that word repent at the end of verse 30. 
It means to turn around, to do a U-turn, to acknowledge your rejection of God, your turning away from him, as demonstrated by your love of money, and to turn towards God, to turn towards his help, like Lazarus. But the rich man knows that his money-loving family aren't doing that. The Bible seems an inadequate warning. It must be inadequate because it hasn't led him or his brothers or sisters to acknowledge their rejection of God. And so the rich man asks for someone from heaven to go and appear to his loved ones. But look with me at the closing words of Jesus' story, verse 31. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, yes, absolutely, you're spot on, rich man, you're spot on when you say they need to repent, to turn around, to turn to God and turn from the love of money. But if they won't listen to the warnings of the Bible, they're not going to listen to a more dramatic warning either. Think about cigarette packets. Two thirds of each box is covered with those massive words, smoking kills or smoking causes cancer. It's a massive, clear, written warning. And if someone's not convinced by that warning, what would persuade them? Maybe meeting a smoker with a lung cancer diagnosis? Would that convince them to try to stop smoking? If they didn't listen to the big written warnings, will they be convinced by anything else? And I don't claim to know the answer to that when it comes to stopping smoking. But in the case of the written warnings of the word of God, Jesus is clear here. If we're not prepared to listen to the Bible's call to acknowledge our rejection of God and the Bible's call for us to turn towards God's help, we would not find a more dramatic call convincing either. So if you're here tonight and you know you're not a Christian, Jesus says to you, Come on now, pay attention to the Bible. I've given you everything you need to follow me. Don't wait for me to do a miracle to show you that I'm there. That won't persuade you. Come now and listen to my word. That's where I tell you who I am and who I've made you to be. And these Sunday gatherings, they're great opportunities for us to together pay attention to the Bible. But we don't have to leave it here. Open up the Bible yourself or ask a Christian friend to read the Bible with you. A place to start could be the book of Luke that we've been looking at in this series. But for those of us who are Christians, what does this mean for how our friends and family might come to know and love God? Jesus says that if those we love will not listen to the Bible, they will not be persuaded by something more dramatic. It's like the warnings on cigarette packets. How can we help those around us engage with the Bible? Could we invite people to join us here on Zoom and YouTube on Sunday evenings? Could we offer to look at the Bible one-to-one? -one? Is there music or drama based upon the Bible that could be helpful to them? But this call to listen to God's word and turn to him in repentance, it isn't just a one-off thing. Here's our final heading for tonight. Keep turning from money to God. Keep turning from money to God. Once we become Christians, you see, the lure of money keeps beckoning us away from God. Where are you tempted to love money? Where does love of money threaten your relationship with God? Where do you turn a deaf ear to what the Bible says about money? Earlier, we considered that this story forces us to examine whether we are prepared to part with money for the sake of the needy and vulnerable. We noticed that using our money to help those in need 
will leave less money for us and our families. To not do so would show a rejection of God. I expect for most of us, there's a challenge there. A similar question to ask is this, how do you feel about giving a proportion of your income to the church? Are you willing to listen to what God's word says on that topic? But being willing to use, being unwilling to use money for the sake of others is only one place where we can turn a deaf ear to what the Bible says about money. For example, as we look to uncertain futures, where do we look for our hope and confidence? What do we do when our financial situation is bleak? Do we trust our Heavenly Father to lovingly care for us and provide us with all we need? If we love God more than money, we can find great comfort in him. But how about in better situations? Perhaps our job seems secure and our bank balance seems fairly healthy. If we love money, we will feel secure as we love, look to our money and our salary. They will be a great comfort to us. But someone who loves God rather than money won't find their confidence in their bank balance. Someone who loves God rather than money will trust the one who governs everything that happens and directs it for our good. Is your heart's confidence for the future in God or is it in money? Let's think about our children. What might we desire for our sons and daughters? Perhaps for them to have a great childhood, lacking no good thing, and then for them to find happiness in a job that pays well. If our hearts know that God is better than money, we might want those things, but our greatest desire for our children will be that they come to know and love the Lord Jesus with the whole of their hearts, souls and minds, that throughout their whole life and beyond, they live for him. So where does your love of money threaten your relationship with God? Listen to his word, confess your love of money and come to him. He offers so much more than money does. We've covered a lot of ground tonight. We listen to Jesus teach that you can't love God and money, that our love of money reveals our awful rejection of God. We listen to his portrayal of the consequences of rejecting God. And we heard his call to listen to the Bible and turn away from the love of money and turn to God. Let me close in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you that you are so wonderful better even than money. Sorry that we turn away from you. Please help us grasp the awfulness of that rejection. Please open our ears to listen to your word and change us so that more and more we love you with all our hearts, soul and strength. In Jesus' name, amen.